Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our reading this morning will be Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. I'll be reading from the ESV. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We are looking at Luke chapter 24. Thank you for the reading of the text. I always appreciate that opportunity. Our primary idea as we go through the scriptures in our study is to see how Jesus Christ, how God rules over the nations, and the nations that he rules over, you and I as the church, are to be making disciples of. We've seen that from Psalm 22, a regular constant theme, and then from Matthew chapter 28. We believe that today the local church is God's means of covering the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. This objective initially came to Adam and Eve, then through Abraham and culminating in Christ to all the nations. The story tells the reader that the nations he rules over you and I, as the local church, are to make disciples of. And we will see from Luke 24 that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are witnessing to the veracity of the biblical story. It is through this mission entrusted to the church that we see his vision come to fruition. And our present sermon series seeks to show the biblical proof for such a claim. Let us pray. Our Father... Today we gather as your people in this place to openly declare our confession of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, your only Son and our Savior through the working of the Holy Spirit. We know the very nations you rule over shall one day sing your praises. We know that we are called on as a local church to make disciples of these very nations. We know you are Yahweh the Most High. There is nothing above you or beyond you. You are enough. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus is the bread of life who has come down from heaven. In him our souls are fed to full. He alone satiates our spirits. 
To Him we look and believe we have no other gods before Him. This morning, as we study Your words, guide us, Holy Spirit. Show us Your story and help us to see our story in light of Your story. May we see that there is only one story. Cause us to see how we are witnesses of Your story. May we work to see this story told globally and until the entire earth is covered with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. Father, we pray specifically for our young people in this place that they would taste and see that you are good. We pray that their minds might be quickened and their hearts believe. May the pull of the present darkness leave them and may they believe, convert them through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of truth. We ask that you would use these minutes of gathering to impact our future timeless existence. We do pray this prayer and this time as an offering brought to you through the advocacy and intercession of the Son and the Spirit. Amen. We are looking at this idea of the fact that we are witnesses of these things. Verse 48 in Luke 24 says that you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, are witnessing to these things. One of the challenges that we then have, the question asked, is what are these things that you and I are to be witnesses of? Think of what you need to survive. Just survive. Food, water, air, Facebook. We're going to look at water for just a moment. Up to 90% of, the, of our body weight comes from water. Up to 60% of the human body is made up of water. The brain and heart are composed of 73% water. And lungs are about 83%. The skin contains 64%. Muscles and kidneys are 79% water. And even our bones are watery at 31%. We change body weight based on water as we age. Babies have far more water than we do as adults. But we understand that life and water are inseparable. Yet we also know that water's destructive powers are notable when they exceed their boundaries. We can always look at hurricanes as an example of this power. We know in many ways that when the levee is breached and the waters exceed that barrier, destruction takes place. And in many ways, the biblical narrative is a surging wall of information. We go from Genesis, we go to Revelation, and we understand that there are 66 books. We understand there are two testaments, and there is an enormous amount of information contained in those 66 books that you and I, as the people of God, must be made aware of. And in many ways, that biblical narrative that we talk about, this story is a surging wall of information that must be contained within certain levees marked by the storyline of Scripture. Our intent in looking at Luke 24 is to tie it to Acts chapter 1. We know that those two books form one continuous story. In Luke's gospel, we know that he speaks of Jesus Christ. We see the death, burial, and resurrection. That particular theme is then picked up by the book of Acts. And Luke tells us this continuous narrative. We know that... In chapters 1 through 7 in the book of Acts, which we will mark in a moment. When I say a moment, I mean in the studies that are coming. Chapters 1 through 7, he is in Jerusalem. The church is in Jerusalem. Then 8 through 12, it's in Judea, Samaria. 
And then 13 through 28, with the journeys of the Apostle Paul, it reaches into the uttermost regions of the world. In our particular passage, what we see happen is that the story that is told is confirmed. Whatever that story is, that's begun in Genesis and culminates in Revelation, that story is confirmed. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then we will see inside that passage, not only is it confirmed that all that has preceded, all that has been promised, has now come to pass, it has culminated or been fulfilled in Jesus, but not only is the story confirmed, but the story continues. It exceeds the boundary. It passes Luke 24 and walks into Acts chapter 1. So there is this idea of story. And yet, what Luke speaks of concerning story, we assume concerning our modern audience. Do we truly understand what the story is? Now, I do not assume that the average individual knows what the Bible is actually talking about. By the time we get to Luke 24, certain assumptions are made. The first and most important assumption is that we actually know what the biblical story is all about. Because that story is being confirmed in Luke 24. That story is continuing in Acts chapter 1. So do we know what that story is? And it's the story that acts as superglue from Genesis to Revelation. But let's for a moment reiterate and revisit this idea of seed promise, of the story. There's these levies. If you don't operate inside the levies of Scripture, the Scripture becomes for us a spiritual Ouija board. But there is a storyline that holds the entire Scripture together, and everything we look at inside of Scripture is feeding those two ideas. And the two ideas that the Scripture feeds is the seed promise of Genesis 3.15 and the blood picture in Genesis 3.21. It says in Genesis 3.15 that from the woman's seed will come one who will crush the serpent's head. We know that. So there is this promise seed given to the people of God whereby the serpent's seed and head will be crushed. Then we see the blood picture in chapter 3, verse 21, where Adam and Eve initially, in their sin against God, sought to clothe themselves with the work of their own hands. God then slays an innocent animal, sheds blood, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin, and he clothes them with the skins of this innocent animal. I believe we see in Genesis 3.21 that there is this substitutionary sacrifice made in behalf of people that can't do it for themselves. God does this for them, and God continues to do it until that seed promise culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus fulfill the seed promise, but he completes the blood picture. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament, all that shedding of blood, was simply imaging, was shadowing what would come to pass in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So those two ideas of a seed promise and a blood picture form for us the levies in which all the flowing of Scripture contribute. It's contained by those two things. Let me walk through several things, and it will trigger in your mind the stories, and you'll realize how they all contribute. I will not be exhaustive. I will be suggestive, and I think you can fill it out even as you think of Scripture. Think of Cain killing Abel. When Cain was born, Eve said, this is the child, this is the promised seed. Cain obviously disappoints, kills Abel. Cain is banned, but then after them comes Seth. Seth becomes part of that initial promise. 
You have Noah. You have the flood narrative. Noah is holding forth that seed promise. In Genesis 12, we have Abraham. Abraham becomes the recipient of that promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 children. He has more than that. But of the 12, one becomes the seed line, and that is the line of Judah. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, we can look at Scripture and all of these things. The exodus, the event when God delivers the nation of Israel from Egypt, that event is shadowing. It's speaking to this larger idea of seed promise and of blood picture. The entire book of Leviticus is speaking to this idea of a blood picture, a substitutionary sacrifice that will atone for the sins of the people. All that imagery, all those stories are contained by, are controlled by, seed promise, blood picture. The story of Ruth, a Moabite, becoming part of the line of David. King David, in 1 Samuel 16, promised one who would sit on an eternal throne. Solomon, the Psalms, we considered the Psalms, Psalm 22. The affliction, then the declaration. All those things are controlled by this idea of a seed promise, of a blood picture. Isaiah 53, that image of a blood sacrifice who is substituting for the sins of the people, that all finds its foundation in Genesis 3.15, in Genesis 3.21. Matthew's genealogy, in chapter 1, verse 1, we read the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's tracing for us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that seed promise. The one who is promised in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Luke's genealogy, Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So there is this storyline found throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. It has these two boundaries, these two ideas that control the entire flow of Scripture's narrative. Seed promise, blood picture. Everything inside the scripture from Genesis to Revelation collapses on Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of that seed promise. And in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his coming again, all those promises are fulfilled in him. The entire story promises the reader that Yahweh shall keep his promise by providing a seed from a woman who shall crush the serpent and his seed. We find that in Jesus. That's the story. No matter what else we might find in Scripture, Scripture is feeding that storyline. It's propelling that idea forward. And this selective seed found in Jesus shall bring victory through a bloody substitutionary sacrifice. Some would say, well, that's quite heady to think such thoughts. But aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is right now acting as your substitutionary sacrifice? Aren't you glad that he is advocating and interceding in your behalf? He is the one who enables us to come before the Father accepted and blameless. The gospel writers explain to the reader that Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed promise that Jesus is the one who completes the blood picture. 
And think for yourself for just a moment. You and I believe the Bible. We believe that Jesus is Lord. We believe that God the Father has raised him from the dead. Do you realize how crazy that sounds to those who don't believe? That's what we believe. That story that I just told you is coming out of the biblical text. And we believe that. Each gospel writer believes they have proven their point. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all believe that what they say concerning Jesus is true. They've proven it. By the time we get to the end of each gospel, the triumph of this storyline culminates with resurrection and ascension. And you think about what we have seen in Matthew 28, now what we will see in Luke 24. Each of them end with this idea that Jesus Christ gives to his church a commission. He gives to them this responsibility to go into all the world and make disciples over which he now rules. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And we are witnesses of these things. We have a story that we are telling. And throughout this narrative, at this point, it says that you and I are witnesses. Witnesses of these things. Well, what things are we witnessing of? The death, the burial, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That everything God told us from Genesis through Revelation is true. It's true. We believe that. And we are coming together as the people of God, making that public confession. We believe all that the scripture has said concerning Jesus is true. And what we could not do, God can and Jesus did. Now, when we get to Luke 24, that's the story that's being confirmed. That's the story that is continuing. It exceeds the boundaries of Luke 24. There are two primary ideas inside our text, and I'm wanting us to consider those two ideas this morning. First of all, the story is confirmed. If you have a Bible and you look at Luke 24, I'll show you this confirmation from Luke 24. The story is confirmed. Everything that the Scripture has said concerning Jesus that was promised, prophesied, and pictured is now fulfilled in Christ. That confirmation takes two paths. The first path is that it is confirmed by witnesses. It is confirmed by witnesses. Notice how Luke 24 plays out as a chapter. There are four things witnessing that what has preceded and what has happened are true. Notice it. In Luke 24, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So after Jesus died, was buried, he rose again the third day, according to Scripture. Some of his disciples went to the tomb, and they found the tomb empty. And they had heard that the one they sought in the tomb was now raised from the dead. We have these early witnesses testifying to the veracity, the truthfulness of the story. That Jesus Christ is indeed alive. 
Then we have that great story in Luke 24, beginning in verse 23, running all the way through 32. We have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We have this scene in the garden. The garden scene is confirming that Jesus Christ is alive. The two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus then encounter the resurrected Christ. And Jesus reveals himself to these two disciples. The truthfulness of the story is not only confirmed at the tomb, but then on the road. Look at verse 33 then in Luke 24. It says, And they stood up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. And I would suggest to you that they are right now back in the upper room. And in the upper room, Jesus Christ reveals himself once more to his disciples. That event, not only at the garden, but on the road, now in the upper room, is confirming the truthfulness of the story that began in Genesis and culminates in Christ. It's true. And these three groups of people at these three different scenes are celebrating the truthfulness. They're witnessing to the truthfulness of the story. And then finally, in verse 50, it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now he ascends. So you have the story confirmed. It's confirmed by witness. You have these four different events in Luke 24. Each event is saying that what has preceded is, is true. It's happened, just as it has been written. At the garden, on the road, in the upper room, and on the Mount in Bethany. He is alive. That story is true. Not only is it, is it confirmed by witness, but it's confirmed by word. And we love these two passages. Notice in Luke chapter 24, verse 26, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus is saying, everything written of me has now indeed come to pass. Verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Moses, the prophets, and the writings. Then we jump over to verse 44. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then notice verse 48. We'll come to this in just a moment. But it says, you are witnesses of these things. In verses 25 through 27 and 44 through 49, Jesus takes his audience back to the Hebrew scripture. And all of it points to Jesus. Remember, there is this significant flow of information from Genesis to Revelation. How do we keep all that in check? We keep it in check to remember our boundaries, our borders. Genesis 3.15, the seed promise. Genesis 3.21, the blood picture. That story culminates in Jesus Christ. That story is confirmed in Luke 24. It's confirmed by these four witnesses, these four stories. It's confirmed by word. Jesus says, everything in the Old Testament text is pointing to me. 
So no matter where you and I place our finger inside the Old Testament text, all of it is pushing us and controlled by those two ideas. That story is confirmed in Jesus. There is a message found in the Hebrew Scripture, and all of it is found in Jesus. The biblical text doesn't simply prove truth, but verifies it is actually being fulfilled. The two biggest takeaways are everything written about me. Everything written about me. The divine plan, the events, and Scripture itself are seen here as being one. And the second thing we see inside our text that keeps contributing to all of this is that the nations he rules over, we as the church are to be making disciples of. Notice how not only is the story confirmed, but the story continues. It says in verse 48 that you and I are witnesses of these things. Well, what things? That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament that he is both Lord and he is alive. They have witnessed to that. Now, you and I as the church are to witness of it. That story continues. We are a part of that story. It continues through witness. We know the word witness in English as the word martyr. And when we think of a martyr, we think of someone who has laid down their life for truth or for whatever their position might be that they're holding fast to. The word martyr itself does not contain the idea of laying down your life. The word martyr or witness simply speaks to the idea of verbally testifying as to what you have seen, heard, or experienced. We are witnesses of something that we have heard of. We read it inside the text, and we can say we've experienced it. We have encountered the living Christ in a way very different than those initial apostles and the apostle Paul. But we are speaking to the truth of what we have heard and seen and experienced. So we are witnesses of that thing, of those things. That story continues to this day. We are witnessing and witnesses of that story. We are witnessing to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The passage continues. You are witnesses of these things. Not only does the story continue through witness, but the story continues through waiting, which is a real interesting thought in verse 49. And behold, and we'll tie this to Acts 1 as we move further through the study. And behold, I am sending the promise. It's a prominent idea, this thought of promise of my Father upon you. This is not seed promise. This is spirit promise. Jesus speaks of this in his upper room discourse. It's also found in Joel chapter 2, and we'll tease all of that out in future studies. But it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But notice, you are to stay. You are to sit down and wait. One of the hardest things I know to do is wait. Sitting still and simply waiting. And now they are told, this, this word given to the disciples in Luke 24 is on day 40, the ascension. It's still 10 days away from Acts chapter 2. And so they are waiting 10 days, 10 days for the fulfillment of this promise. 
they're not sure when it's even going to happen. They just know that they're supposed to wait to stay until it happens. We know in hindsight it's still 10 days away, but they're waiting for 10 days. The story is continuing both through witness and through waiting, and waiting is so difficult. But what's the intent of this waiting? The waiting is for us to know that it isn't about us, but about him. We don't, he does. He didn't simply send them out there to do what they wanted. He said, I want you to witness of these things, but first you have to wait. It says that you are going to be clothed until you are clothed with power from on high. The program of God is carried out by the power of God. It's not something that we can do. It's something that he does. And what are we waiting for? We are waiting for this promise. I believe the promise is stated in Joel 2, verses 28 and 29, and we will see it come to pass in Acts chapter 2 when we get there. This is the promise that we are waiting for. The first occurrence of this form of the noun form for promise is right here in Luke 24, verse 49. Acts 1 will confirm and verify that what Luke states here does indeed come to pass. Acts 2 is the fulfillment of Luke 24, verse 49. The seed promise, the seed promise that we've been speaking of, and the spirit promise that is now spoken of in Luke 24, 49 are very, two very different ideas but they are inseparable and irreversible. It is because of the seed promise we now have the spirit promise. Because the seed promise has been fulfilled, so now will be the spirit promise. We will have that. You cannot have one without the other, and you cannot switch the order. Matthew speaks of presence, and Luke speaks of power. When you look at Matthew 28, you look at Luke 24... They are both saying the same thing. They're coming at it from different vantage points. Matthew 28 says, Lo, I will be with you always. And Luke says, wait for the power. One speaks of presence. The other one speaks of power. Again, the two ideas are inseparable and irreversible. It is the presence and power of God for us to know that it isn't about us, but about him. What we cannot do, he does indeed do. Acts will show us the victory of God as the Spirit of God and the Word of God continue to advance. I I find this interesting when you look at structure. So what's happening in Luke 24? Well, the story is being confirmed. Everything that has preceded this has come to pass. Jesus Christ is Lord. He does indeed rule over the nations. And He is alive. The very nations He rules over, you and I, are to be making disciples of. And we are witnesses to this story, to these things. It's confirmed, but it continues. Now we are witnessing of what is true, but we have to wait. We have to wait for the Spirit's power. When you get to the book of Acts, and you look at chapter 1 in the book of Acts, verse 8, we have this passage. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts chapter 2, and you shall be my witnesses, what we've already seen in Luke 24, 48, 
both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. We noted that earlier. But again, in chapters 1 through 7, we have this witness happening in Jerusalem. 8 through 12, it begins to spread to Judea, Samaria. And finally, with the Apostle Paul, from 13 all the way through 28, it takes us to the uttermost regions of the world. And we are testifying to the truth that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that seed promise. He is the one who will crush the serpent's head. We are testifying, witnessing to the truth that in Christ, the blood picture has been completed. That you and I, as the people of God, can stand before the Father blameless, fully accepted as his people. We know in hindsight that the day of waiting is over. Our mission is set. It's known. We are now to advance and spread throughout the entire world. And I would argue from the book of Acts, that's exactly what has happened and is happening. Our power to be the church is found in our union with Christ, accomplished through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. Significant theological ideas that need to be expanded on and explained. But for now, we'll stay inside this present study. The book of Acts tells us God is finishing his story. When we look at the book of Acts, in chapters 1 through 7 and chapter 6, verse 7, it says inside that context of the church in Jerusalem, and the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the truth. When we see the church exceeding Jerusalem and going into Judea and Samaria, chapter 12, verse 24, says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. There's this repeating emphasis upon the word of God. The Spirit is now doing that work. He has come upon the church. The promise has been fulfilled, and the church is expanding. The glory of God is expanding. It's beginning to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. When we begin in chapter 13 with the Apostle Paul, we see the church in the uttermost parts. Acts 13, 49 says, And the word of God was published throughout all the region. In chapter 19, verse 20, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What I find interesting about the book of Acts is that Acts tells us that God is winning. God is winning. What God promised is coming to pass. You and I are a part of a story that is continuing to this day, and it's continuing to move forward. And all we endeavor to do is get inside that story, is to realize that we are a part of that story. Acts is doing that. What we see in the book of Acts is that the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and doing a sure work in the people of God. God is fulfilling his promise to us and through us to those around us. That's what we are a part of. God is winning. We know from the scripture that Jesus rules over the nations. We know from scripture that we are to now make disciples of these nations. We know from scripture, Luke 24, that the promise of God has been fulfilled. And the spirit of God given to us is working in us and through us to those around us. We are witnesses of these things. We were to wait in Luke 24, and there's a sense in which we continue to wait to this day. We wait on God knowing that he is doing this work, not us. It is his work, not ours. And the text tells us that we are witnesses 
of these things. We are saying to everyone everywhere that what the scripture says is indeed true. We believe this. As we look at Luke 24, as we consider this idea of missions, let me close with six thoughts. The first thing is this. You and I are living inside of a story that began in Genesis and continues to this day. We're a part of that biblical narrative. We're a part of it right now. Secondly, we are living out the victory of God and fulfilling his vision for the world. It is not for us to walk around forlorn thinking that God is losing. God is winning. We prayed for the people of Myanmar, a persecuted church. You know what God is doing in Myanmar? He's winning. God is winning in Myanmar. God's not losing. God is playing out his plan to reclaim what is rightfully his as creator redeemer, and he is doing it through signs and wonders. What is this going to look like? Heaven and earth will one day be completely unified, and we will be with him forever for our joy. The third thing, we are recipients of the Holy Spirit who placed us in Christ and empowers us for mission. It's not something we can do in our own strength. It is something that he is doing in us and through us to those around us. The fourth thing is that there is nothing we lack to do what he wants. There's nothing we lack. We have everything we need. Someone says sometimes in response to the program or the plan, do we have enough money? And the answer is, oh, come on, that was weak. Do we have enough money to do what is needed, done? Yes. We have enough money to do what is needed to be done. Now, I've never been one to actually look at numbers. <laughs> but we have everything we need. I think God will move hearts to give in ways in which the ministry moves forward. I'm not worried about that. People who write the checks are. But I'm not. I'm not. Can we fund this? Can we fund that? And the answer is absolutely. If God wants it done, it will be done. We have everything we need to do what needs to be done. As one philosopher said, there is no try, just do. Since the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and does a sure work in the people of God, let us make sure our work is Word-centered. Make sure the work is Word-centered because it is the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God and does a sure work in the people of God. God is working. And finally, God is working. He's working. He's working. We simply need to get in line with his work, both locally, nationally, and globally. But God is working. We simply get in line and see what he's going to do in us and through us to those around us. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, we as your people have gathered in this place and we have submitted ourselves to your word, to your spirit. You have confirmed the integrity of your promises through witness and word. Everything shouts you. We are called on as a church during this time period to continue this witness. We have waited and you have answered. Your story assures us that it isn't about us, but about you. And what we cannot do, you can and Jesus did. 
We are believing you are working and moving your design to its fullest completion. We know that the Spirit of God takes this word and does a sure work. We rest knowing that. Thank you, Father, for this time together as your people strengthen us by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.